Welcome back to Out Loud, the Selective Mutism podcast. I'm Chelsea. And I'm Ann, Chelsea's mother. And today we have a special guest, Dr. Alicia Goodman. Um, she's a licensed psychologist and certified school psychologist. She's also the founder and owner of Simply Psychology, LLC in Air- Phoenix, Arizona. She works with children who have anxiety disorders, and she specializes in selective mutism. Um, She has experience working with children ages 3 to 17 with selective mutism in both school and clinical settings. She's also completed the training, um, Selective Mutism Training Institute in Washington, D.C., and she's also done numerous hours of self-study on selective mutism. So parent training and school involvement are super important components in her treatment, and she also conducts um, psychoeducational evaluations and psychological evaluations uh, for the diagnosis and treatment of selective mutism, Tourette syndrome, OCD, ADHD, twice exceptional learners, gifted students, and learning disorders. She's the founder of Mental Health Practitioners Group of Arizona and the mother of two. <laughs> who are both gifted in very different ways. I'm reading this exactly from her website, um, <laughs> which is um, simplypsychservices.com. It also says you like to travel and exercise outdoors. You enjoy the theater and camping. <laughs> well, welcome, Alicia, and thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. So I was just curious, um, you know, I guess, what first got you interested in selective mutism? Do you have, you're a mom of two boys or two kids. Do you have boys or girls? Yeah, I have, uh, my daughter is 10 and my son is 13. Okay. And am I allowed to ask, or is it personal to ask, you know, one of your kids affected by selective mutism? Um, They're not specifically, but my son um, has some social anxiety and my daughter, when she was younger, I didn't realize at the time. So she's 10 now. This was you know, about eight years ago, um, seven years ago, I didn't realize that at that time I didn't, I hadn't really worked with selecting me to them a whole lot back then. And, um, but she would clam up in social situations or people would talk to her and she wouldn't respond. And I didn't realize it at the time, but I guess I was doing the right thing because Uh I was answering for her and, um, I was encouraging her to, you know, order her own food super early on. Uh Um, and so she's done, phenomenal and she doesn't really have any of that anymore um but i would say anxiety kind of runs in my family um so yeah we've we've i've always been drawn to treating anxiety based disorders so mm. yeah so how did you like discover selective mutism then yeah, that that's a great question so when i worked in the schools as a school psychologist i had a few cases um of kids who had selective mutism they weren't Um, diagnosed that at the time and people really weren't really sure what was going on with them but being the school psychologist on campus they called me in and um, to take a look at the situation and I really I was really impacted by how much information that I actually was able to find online but how uninformed um, the teachers were and the school team was about it and so I really take every case um, very seriously and very, very much to heart. And so I really dove into um, a very specific case that I had. It was a sixth grader 
um, who, who wasn't speaking. And I dove into learning about it. Um, we made a lot of accommodations so the child could still um, receive an education because at the time she was also exhibiting um, school refusal. And so she wasn't going into the classroom. So, you know, I really helped with having, we did an audio feed from the classroom so that she could get audio actually and video in the library. So she wasn't missing out on mm. instruction, but I had to work with a lot of different teams within the school setting and they hadn't been used to that before. They're like, what are you asking us to do? Why are you right. asking us to do that? Uh, but I, it was successful in helping her, um, in doing some, um, exposures with her and helping her with her anxiety. And it was very rewarding. Um, and even to be able to teach people about SM. And then after that case, I had a few other cases of some younger kids uh, that I worked with that did very well um, with some of the stuff I was doing with them in the schools. And it was just so rewarding just for teachers to say, wow, you know, Su little Susie's talking now, or, you know, they're mm -hmm. talking to her friend at lunch, you know, and just knowing that we were doing what we were doing was making a difference. It was very rewarding. And then I looked into, you know, I saw there was a national organization. I joined that. I, I got the opportunity to present at the national conference. Um, and then when I saw that there was the training, the SMTI, I was like, I need to go do this. Um, and then I actually have attended twice. The second time I brought um, a school psychologist who works with me at Simply Psychology, Kristen Larson, um, I brought her with me. Um, it was on, it brought her with me. It was online. <laughs> that one was online. <laughs> um, but I said, hey, you got to come do this. So um, I was also really surprised that when I looked at the providers available in the state of Arizona, I was the only person listed at that wow. time. I don't know if that's changed. Um, but I, I was like, wow, this is really important. And I remember my first clients saying we've been looking for so long for somebody you know we're so glad that you're here and that you're trained and so it's just been very rewarding mm -hmm. that's huge yeah i yeah. know when chelsea was diagnosed um i had looked in boston and at that time there was one physician who was well known as the sm doctor you know so of course that's who you want um, and she was no longer taking any new patients mm -hmm. so you know yeah. yeah it was back in like 2000 yeah, it's gotten a lot better, but I still think like it's hard to find people who really know what they're yeah. talking about. Yeah. And even schools still seem like they don't right. know what's happening. So yeah. did you start in the school system? I did. Um, yeah, I. <laughs> it's a, that's an interesting question. Yeah, because, I, you know, obviously uh, myself and then having my doctorate, and so, but I just continued, right? I couldn't get out of the school system. <laughs> um, no, but I, I loved it so much. Um, being a school psychologist was it was very rewarding. Um, also, you know, it's exhausting. Um, there are a lot of pieces that it, it makes it difficult, I think, to really be a psychologist um, in that role as a school psychologist, because you're doing a lot of other things, um, mm -hmm. including a lot of paperwork and a lot of report writing. And um, it, it, unfortunately, um, it's a field that I think people get burned out in. Um, but I, I was a school psychologist. Um, in the schools for for nine years and i still maintain my national certification because i think when you work with children i think it's really important to understand that school component because it's so much mm -hmm. a part of 
you know, their day and that's where they're spending most of their time. Yeah. Right. It's huge. So I have kind of a off topic question, but I saw that (laughs) you have a bachelor's in criminal justice. So I was wondering what, how that came about and how you ended up (laughs) doing what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. So, um, I actually started my undergrad, um, as a fine arts major and I was, yeah, I, I thought, you know, I was really creative. I loved art and that was my favorite class in high school. In fact, I, um, took two classes of art my senior year just cause I had the room in my schedule and, and I did it, but I realized I, I didn't want to be a starving artist. I didn't want my income to be based on what other people thought about my, about my artistic ability. <laughs> um, so I, I got interested in really it was more like the psychological profile of um criminals i guess you would say um and but what i found myself drawn to even in the criminal justice system and in working my way through my bachelor's degree was helping children and so after i um graduated i went to work for a residential treatment facility uh, for juveniles who had been adjudicated so it was like their um their last stop kind of before being locked away. And I worked with kids um, as young as seven in that facility, all the way up to 17. Um, And I knew, I knew from a very young age that I loved children. I was babysitting at 12. I mean, I was a kid myself, but I just loved that. Um, And so I was drawn to that, you know, in the criminal justice system. And I saw other people working there that were psychologists who were working there. And I thought, that's interesting. And I also uh, found myself, I worked the three to 11 shift. So I was helping the kids because they would go to school there. I was helping them with homework. Mm-hmm. And I was, but I was seeing so many gaps they had educationally for lots of different reasons, I'm sure. Um, but I would see, I would see that and I really wanted to help them. And I remember doing this like online search, just you know, education, teacher, and psychology. Like, how do I, how do I put them together? And school psychology came up and I thought, wow, that's cool. What, what's that about? You know? And so then that was, I was in Ohio at that time. And then I moved out to Arizona. I was kind of, I think I was just kind of done with Ohio at that point and wanted a fresh, fresh um, look at, at life. And so I moved to Arizona and got a job working at um, an alternative school. Um, and then I went through, and then I got accepted into the ASU grad program, um, for my doctorate in educational psychology, but I followed along the, the, the path. I left all the doors open. So if I wanted to get licensed as an independent psychologist, I could. And even though at the time I thought, Oh, I won't do that. I'll just stay in the schools. I'm really glad that I, I left that opportunity for myself. Um, and then yeah, after working, I was probably my last two years of working in the schools when I had gotten licensed, but I did some work, uh, some consultation work, and then some testing work for a group practice um, before I was um, licensed just with some supervision and then yeah. able to open my own practice. What is your favorite um, age group that you enjoy working with? Is it the younger uh, ones or the teens? Oh, that's tricky. That's really tricky. I love them all for different reasons, Uh you know, because I feel like when I work with the younger ones, there's so much education that I'm giving parents um, because, you know, you have a four or five year old and and you're not doing cognitive behavioral therapy with them because they're Mm -hmm. too young. 
for that. So there's a lot of psychoeducation that I'm giving to the parents. And I find that to be very rewarding because Mm -hmm. they're, they're learning and then they're applying it and they're seeing the differences and the changes and then they're excited about it. And then you see the the improvement with the kids. So I, I like the younger age for that. They're also really, it's really fun. I get on my mm-hmm. floor and play dolls with them or Legos. And so that's fun too. Cause I'm like, I think about what my caseload is going to be like that day. And if I have younger ones, I'm like, yes, I'll wear jeans and you know, yeah. a fancy top. And if they're in the office, so much has been telehealth lately, but yeah. And, that, and that's fun to play with. But I really do enjoy the teens too. And their, their perspective on life. Um, and just, Mm. allowing them to kind of go with the flow and helping to guide them, really giving them that, that feeling and that independence that, you know, I'm just your guide. You're the one who's doing all the work. And Mm -hmm. so it's really cool to see them be proud of the work that they've done and, and the steps that they've made to make progress. And, and I love throwing it back and just saying, this was you all along. This was, this came from you. I just helped to guide you. So I'd like, I like them all. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So you mentioned psychoeducation, which is pretty interesting. Is so, so does that play like a role when you're working with older kids, like teenagers? And can you yeah. kind of explain what that means to the listeners? In of case course. They don't yeah, yeah. So um, psychoeducation is really just about informing clients or parents about whatever disorder might be going on. Let's say we're talking about anxiety. So Mm -hmm. I do a lot of work explaining, like I draw, you know, a crude drawing of a brain on my my board and explain the different parts and what's happening and how when the amygdala is set off, you know, it's like setting off a fire alarm on the whole brain. And so it shuts down the thinking center and talk about development of the brain and how it develops from the back to the front and from the inside out. So we have all of those like instinctual things that happen like heartbeat and heart rate and things that happen when we get anxious that get um get triggered and so it it's a nice segue to teaching um skills related to physiological like if there's physiological arousal from the anxiety teaching those skills like the deep breathing the belly breathing the visualizations the grounding and mindfulness because it teaches them what we're actually doing with the brain and why it works. And, mm-hmm. and then with cognitive behavioral therapy, very similarly too, you know, about how we can only have one thought at a time. And so what's the thought that we're having? How is it impacting our action? Um, how is that action, you know, serving us in regards to a consequence? Is it something that we like to be happening or something we'd like to change? And then this idea, right, that you're going back and changing the thought. And it's not the behavior that you're changing. It really starts with the thought and that, mm-hmm. you know, and so I, it's teaching, it's teaching the clients if they're old enough, you know, and I do it developmentally appropriately as well. I'll start about age eight to, to start teaching about the brain. And I do, we'll do drawings and paintings and things like that for the younger ones, but for the older ones and adults, you know, it's, um, it's just teaching them about what's happening in the brain and why it's happening. And, you know, anxiety is important. And I talk about that, you know, it's, we have to have anxiety to keep us safe. If we didn't have anxiety, we wouldn't have been to this appointment on time. You know, it keeps us, keeps us going. Um, but there's, you know, there's a level where it can be the amygdala hyperactive or overactive. And so that's kind of what we're dealing with. And so the older kids definitely, I, I, 
hundred percent do psychoeducation with them. So they understand what's going on with them and why they might be having the thoughts and why they might be, um, you know, not able to communicate when they're feeling anxious. Um, and, and parents too, but I, I love that piece. So I do, I do trainings for teachers and I do trainings for uh, parents. Sorry. Um, what percentage of your practice uh, is SM or selective mutism? Do you see a lot of it? That's a really good question. Um, that that wasn't on my list of questions. Gosh, I would say close to half. Wow. Really? Wow. But well, maybe not. Maybe maybe closer to a third. But yeah. But it's it's it it's a little. Let me explain that. So I I see kids mostly. I'll start them with individual therapy or we'll do some PCITSM um, with them as the parent-child interaction therapy for selective mutism. However, once they start making progress, let's say they have, you know, five or 10 minutes, they're warmed up to me, they're speaking with me, we've faded out the parents. Um, so we start usually with the parents in the room and mm-hmm. fade out the parents. Um, and so they're speaking with me freely, they're making progress on their goals outside of treatment. So yes, that, you know, parents have done exposures and they've been successful. You know, I like to move them to my social skills group pretty quickly. So I have, you know, right now I have three social skills groups, um, that are, that are what I say full. Um, and they, yeah, no, it's great. It's great. And it it goes really well. So I would say, you know, of those kids, the majority of them are kids that came to me with SM that went through some individual therapy. We did some parent um, education, psychoeducation stuff, PCITSM stuff, and they made progress. And I said, look, let's get them into social skills because this is the next step for them. They can come see me and talk to me all day, but I need them practicing these social skills mm-hmm. with other peers, their age, you know. And so if I count, you know, I have kind of a cluster of those kids, right, that I see for, for social skills. Um, and then, but for individual therapy right now, I would say maybe more like a quarter or a fifth for individual, but then I just move them pretty quickly. So they're still kind of on my caseload, but I'm still, I think that's impressive. Like, you know, in my mind, I'm still thinking it's, you know, the rare child here and there out there. Like, but when there's so little like professionals that are like actually have experience with it, I feel like you Right. probably get a lot more yeah. clients. Yeah. Well, and I think being not having a lot of other clinicians in the mm-hmm. state, you know, I get people from Tucson that come up. I get people from, you know, the outskirts of the state um, as well. And so they're, you know, mm-hmm. coming sometimes a couple hours. Wow. Um, yeah. So I remember when Chelsea was young, so I had, I forget, somebody had recommended a social skills group. And um, I had finally tracked down somebody who was offering one. And I think for a year I was on their list because every time they planned a group, there weren't enough kids to have half the group. So they would just cancel. Yeah. That's super. Yeah. It, that's a struggle. I think um, I've been trying to get together a high school group for a while and I have a few that are interested, but I, I run into the same thing. I have run in the same thing with the high schoolers as, and I think partly it's because I was, I was able to get my groups together because of the individual, you know, therapy they were seeking. 
And parents were very much on board of, you know, once they're doing well and they're making gains, you know, hey, the social skills group is an option and they're like, wow, that's great. And so they were very much on board that way. Um, I think with the high schoolers, I get less individual clients that come to me for therapy that are older mm -hmm. for varied reasons. Um, I think for varied reasons. Um, but the ones that I have had come, you know, I'm like, I want to, I want to get a group together for you guys because it's so different. High school's so different. Do you find that everyone with selective mutism can benefit from social skills group or are there sometimes like cases where they are, I don't know, like developmentally up to par with social skills? Okay. So that's, that's a really good question. And I think I'll take that maybe in, in two parts. Um, I think that, and if I forget the other part, please remind me <laughs> to address it, but cause I'm hearing two kind of two questions. One is, um, can anybody benefit from social skills group? What if they already have skills that are kind of up to par? Mm -hmm. um, and then, and so for that one, I would say that, that most of the kids I've treated, if not all of them, have struggled in some way with social skills. And when I talk about social skills, I'm, I'm meaning like the ability to join a group the ability to keep a conversation going, knowing what to say next. If somebody asks you a question like, do you like dogs? And the answer is no. And you say no, that's the end of the conversation. You have, you have to learn, you know, and part of that is probably the anxiety, right? But also it's maybe not knowing what to say. And so in those groups where I have my middle school group, we're working a lot on this is, okay, you said no. Okay. Make a comment about it or say something that you think you might have in common and then ask a question. So you talk a lot about a tennis match, you're, you know, throwing the ball back to them and they're catching it. You're answering the question, you're commenting, questioning back. And so we practice a lot with that conversational turn taking. Um, I, I can't say I have anyone in my group that hasn't benefited from having some of those mm -hmm. skills. Now, as far as I, I think we have a little bit of the other way in that not everybody um, can benefit from it. If like, for example, and, and that's why I'm kind of careful about who I recommend to those groups is because if they're not warmed up, warming up to me within the first five to 10 minutes, and they're not making progress on their goals outside of therapy. So they're not speaking to anybody else. Could they come to, I know one of the questions you had asked before was, could they come to group and still benefit from it? Mm -hmm. I think that they could learn something, but I really feel like the practice is, is the meat of the group. They have to be able to participate on some level. And, and I say on some level because some kids, you know, I'm, I'm prompting, right? I'm prompting a little bit more. And some I'm, you know, waiting the five to 10 seconds and I'm repeating the question and reframing the question and doing all of those skills that, you know, of PCI TSM too, um, within that group. But we, they have to at some point be able to give something or it's hard for me to assess. Right. And then also they're not probably doing that outside of group either. And so I think it looks, you look at how are you measuring success? And if you're measuring success, like the skills they're learning, they're able to do outside. I think someone who's, who's silent in group is 
also struggling to communicate outside of group. Yeah, I was going to ask about what strategies you use in therapy, and you've mentioned CBT and also PCITSM. But mm-hmm. we were wondering if you, um, do you know Dr. Kurtz? Yes, I do. You do? Yes. How do you know him? How Is do it- I know him? <laughs> <laughs> I know him because he's a, he's the big guy in, yeah. in SM. And um, he, he has, he led the SMTI oh. uh, twice. And he also um, was part of the team that asked me to present at the national conference. So I, I've learned, you know, the skills from him um, with the, the PCITSM stuff. Um, and that's how I would say I know him. Okay. That's <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I've been through, I, so I'm on the, the SMA listserv and I, I do a lot of communication with other SM specialists and understanding, you know, how are they running um, how are they running intensive groups? And I've had conversation with Dr. Kurtz about that too, and about helping um, to get that going. So to make sure, you know, it's full of integrity because I like to. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's great. That's cool. We're just curious. (laughs) Um, So I guess what did these social skills groups look like? Like what is your curriculum like? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a really good question. So honestly, each semester is really different. I do it by semester. So we're in the middle of our fall, actually smack dab in the middle of our fall um, semester right now. Um, I use a guidebook of teaching social skills to children that was put out by Dr. Lawrence Shapiro. Um, but I'm also using strategies that are related to developing emotional literacy and some social skills cue cards. Um, things that they're looking at. Um, with the older ones, it's it's more wordy, like um, we talk about nonverbal communication and um, space, like how much space did you give somebody not to stand too close, not to stand too far away. And um, really using even Dr. Elisa Shippon Blum's stuff with the communication bridge. So nonverbal communication, um, working our way through those things. Even though these kids in the groups are verbal, I think it's important that they recognize that their nonverbal facial expressions and how they're looking at people and their way their body is turned is communicating something yeah. to other people. Um, so we do some work about... Um, you know, we do greetings. We do for the younger ones. There's a lot of show and tell. We do some scavenger hunt stuff um, where I have very purposefully, um, you know, each group, we, we make it a little bit more challenging um, where at the beginning I was picking, you know, the color, go find something blue, go find something fuzzy, go find, you know, and they bring it back and they're sharing it, right? It was all telehealth right now. So that's why the, I had to adapt to that. So we were doing different, some different things in the office, but that I'm talking about our telehealth sessions because that's how they are right now. Um, and then I started, okay, so-and-so pick a friend that you want to go find, you know, a color and you choose the color or ask so-and-so what color they want to choose. So now, right, they're engaging with each other. It's not just me and them, but now they're saying um, the person's name and they're making a decision to call out a color or they're taking input from somebody else 
to say, well, let's ask, you know, Susie what color she wants to pick. And so it's about communicating. It's about speaking to each other, to their peers. Um, those, those are kind of for the, for the younger ones. I do nonverbal communication skills through, we do like charades. Um, we'll do a silent Simon Says. Um, we'll do, um, for the older kids, um, I still like to keep it fun, um, but we do things like, um, we'll do like a hangman game in the beginning and I just screen share it. And so everybody has to go through and, and pick a letter. So they're using their voice to pick a letter. Um, and then we do a social bingo where I'm splitting them up into some breakout groups. I'm having them find out something new about somebody else, but they have these, um, these cards that are like, uh, I guess you would call them like, um, well, the bingo cards, but they have things on them like favorites cards, like what, you know, favorite food, favorite movie, favorite, you know, so they can start a conversation about some, okay. about a topic that might be of interest to both of them. Um, we do, I do some videos to show what a conversation is. What does it look like? We break it down for those older ones, you know, comment, question, repeat, and even the younger kids, um, we, we start talking about that. So when they do their show and tell, there are, you know, four questions that they know kind of by heart now, because we've been, we do it every time, you know, mm -hmm. these are the types of questions you can ask to the person who's sharing. And then it's answering those questions and then, okay, ask another question about the same thing. So just breaking it down by level. Um, I assess the, the group skills like individually, but look at them as a group pretty early on. And then I'm, I'm really kind of allowing the group to di dictate what we're going to do next in regards to what, what do I see that's missing? Like, oh, you know, and, and the groups are small enough that if I see one person is struggling with a specific skill, then I can make that, you know, we can do that next time and have everybody practice it because it's, you know, I can, I can do that because it's not a group of 20. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And then it, I also provide like at home study for the parents to do with their children. So based on the skills that they've learned in group that week, um, that's like uh, things they can do at home. And so there's a general thing. And then I also tweak that. So there's, um, what do I call it? Bringing it down a notch. So if the, if the typical thing that I have, the average thing I have is too hard, you know, this is a, a scaffold, you know, you can do it like this instead. And then I also have one that's called, oh, what do I call it? It's just an, I guess, an extension activity. So it's the act, it's the regular activity, but then, um, you, you know, if you need it to be a little bit harder, you want, you know, your kid's already doing fine here, try this extension activity. So they get that, the parents get that um, the Thursday before the Saturday group, every time there's a Saturday group and we meet twice, twice a month on Saturdays. Mm -hmm. What age is the older group? What, what age bracket? Yeah. So the older ones are between nine to 12. Mm, okay. Nine to 12. And, I, and then I have two younger groups that I split by skill level the one younger group are are newer to group and so we're working on more basics and then the other group even though similar age it's their second round through session second or third round through session so they're already have some of those skills so that one I just kind of ramped up a little bit but those are four four to six 
Do you find, I'm just curious, with the teen or the older group, preteen or older group, are those kids newly diagnosed or would they have been, you know, kind of struggling since they were like, you know, five or six or? Well, also an interesting question. I think the kids that are new, newly diagnosed that are older were struggling when they were younger, but as far as a new diagnosis to them, um, yeah, I mean, I would say that several of them had come to me first through for individual therapy or the parents were seeking me out because of my specialty in SM and I worked them through that same process. So we did some individual work and then um, felt they were ready for social skills groups. But yeah, I would say within the last two years. What would you, do you have any recommendations or any, you know, for people that are listening that maybe have a teenager who don't live near somebody that's specialized in SM, um, for like an older teen who just thinks they're fine, you know, they don't need help. Like, this is just how I am. Like, yeah. no, it's so hard to, yeah. Like, how to get them to realize that maybe they do need help or therapy? Um, so I would probably address that similarly to the way that I would address any, um, teen that is kind of maybe resistant to therapy, which would be using some motivational interviewing techniques. Then you can do that with writing, you know, but I would say, even if they don't have a specialist in their area, um, having a good therapist that can, can take suggestions or learn a little bit about, or even specializes in anxiety because they should understand social anxiety at least. Um, and being able to, to work with them to see if there's anything that can be common ground between what the child wants out of, you know, for example, um, a, a while back I was working with someone who really wanted to go to a brick and mortar school. Um, and they weren't, and they weren't speaking. And that was a, that was a motivation factor for them to say, you know, and we were able to use that to say, okay, well, this is something you really, really want. These are some goals that we, we need you to to work on, you know, and, but I think you, you have to get some sort of buy-in at some point. Mm -hmm. Otherwise it's not going to be useful. Yeah. I never had like a social skills kind of I tried. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's an important part. That, yeah. yeah. And I think especially for, you know, not the little ones, but maybe even the older ones, because so much of it is um, nonverbal, mm -hmm. you know, for the peers to be accepted into that peer group, like yeah. not be viewed as being snobby or, you know, yeah. whatever. Yeah. And, yeah. and even, I'm going to go back to one of your earlier questions about um, do they have the skills? I, I think even if they do, I think it helps with confidence building the having the group hmm. because they're able to practice the skills that maybe they do already have, but are unsure about themselves and they can practice it, you know, in a safe environment, you know, with, with, they know me already. Usually, um, well, I at least do a screening with even the new kids. So they know me before the first, first session. Um, but yeah, it's a safe place for them to practice. And I'm telling them, okay, it's very scripted in the beginning too. Like, all right, this is what you're going to say. This is, so they get some confidence with that. And then parents are saying, yeah, they, you know, so-and-so taught, they talked to a friend today and I, oh my gosh. And they're asking to go to so-and-so's house and this is great. You know, they think they're using those things, those skills that they're learning and, and applying them, which is great. Bring them over. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So do any of the kids that are in your social group, do you, um, do you actually visit their school and make recommendations at school? Does that cross over? Um, it can. Um, I do some consultations with school psychologists um, of the kids that I'm working with. Um, if they're the parents, you know, I usually help guide the parents through that process um, if, if they need it or want it to whatever level they need or want. Um, I also do have a, um, I have a behavior coach, um, parent coach that works with me at Simplice Psychology and she's a special education teacher and she's phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And so anytime we need somebody to kind of go to the school or work with the school team, it's usually, I usually have the parents work with her. Um, but I have, I have, I have talked with, I have a couple consultations coming up um, next week. So talking with, you know, school psychologists to help them understand. And I find that there's a lot of um, just misunderstanding, just uninformed. Um, you know, I, I get asked to fill out medical certification forms and, you know, they're trying to classify them as, you know, other health impairment, which really it's more, this is an anxiety-based disorder. So it's really an emotional disability. And so um, that's one, I know one of the questions you had for me was um, what kind of obstacles do you face with, you know, with that? And um, so I, I have to educate them, you know, this isn't, this is an anxiety based condition. And so it's not medical from the sense of how typically ADHD is considered, you know, a medical condition, they want a physician to sign off on it. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I find that interesting. So it's just about kind of edu educating. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, so I'm kind of interested in that. <laughs> so on the form, you know, for um, to get a 504 or an IEP or whatever. So here, a lot of the, actually the only checkoff or checkbox that I know for ADHD, everyone checks other to get it to go through. Yeah. So, so for ADHD, it, it, it typically is under other health impairment or OHI. So there are 13 different categories under special education law that a child can qualify for special education. Now you're talking about a 504. So that's a little different because that's a general education plan. Um, but the kids can be successful. Kids with SM can be successful on a 504 or an IEP. Um, and I think it, it depends on a lot of factors, including severity um, and how much they really need somebody at the school to be working with them. Because one of the main differentiations between a 504 and IEP is that an IEP requires that specialized instruction piece, uh -huh. whereas a 504 is just the accommodation piece. Uh -huh. So if you need somebody working directly with the child doing some pride skills, right, for PCITSM or um, working with them, you know, as a key worker, 10 to 15 minutes a day, three days a week, I, I would lean towards informing parents that you probably want an IEP for that because they could change schools, the teacher could change, um, and then maybe the teacher's not doing the same thing. So you could, they, teachers can be really great and accommodating without plans. And sometimes I hear that too, is they'll say, well, the teacher's doing what I'm asking them to do, which is great. But what about a sub that comes into the classroom? Or what about next year? How are you going to transition, you know, your child to the next year and make sure that the plan is still in place for them to be successful? Yeah. So do most of the SM kids have uh, either a 504 or IEP? In your uh, not, I would say not when they come to me. Mm-hmm. And Not when they start to come to me. <laughs> and what about near the end of treatment? 
not near the end, but um, I would say we have some. I would say we have something in place to help them at school okay. by the time they're finished, you know, with treatment with me. Yes, unless unless they have done so well and they're doing so well in school that we don't need it anymore. And we've had kids like that that I couldn't even say anymore that they're SM because they're now they're speaking in all environments across all settings to new people you know so sometimes they you know with treatment they do so well that they, they don't need it so i would say one of two things either they they come out not not needing anything or we have some kind of accommodation or sometimes it's sometimes it's in the middle of treatment we have some accommodations and we're letting the school know and then but i tell the parents too it's not just because you have this now does not mean your child's going to need this forever it's also very important you know i let parents know we're not even though we're saying iep it doesn't mean your child's going to be in a different classroom in fact i don't want them in a different classroom i want them in the regular classroom or in their gifted classroom or whatever you know it's just that other people need to be helping so your child can access the same curriculum in the same way. Maybe we need an alternate assignment for now. And I talk about, you know, nonverbal communication and especially important. I know this was another um, question that you had, especially important for health concerns, for needing to use the bathroom, for things that, you know, if they're hurt, um, if they need to communicate something to a bus driver or a cafeteria person, how are they going to do that? So having those supports in place the basic problem solving for safety and basic needs are always top priority so I, I that's why you know i i say well yeah they usually have something when they're done because i'm saying what if your child gets hurt on the playground in there they need to be able to tell someone something in some way whether they're pointing to a picture no we don't want that for the end all be all nonverbal. but in the moment you know how we have to help help your child so yeah <laughs> I'm kind of passionate about this. Can you yes, tell? Yes, <laughs> I love it. No, yeah, it's super, super great. Yeah, I love how you're asking our questions for us. <laughs> um, yeah, so are there any other like obstacles that you run into trying to accommodate for selective mutism? And yeah, so the other big one I think is um, that because the child might be performing fine academically. Mm -hmm. they'll say that they don't need help right. or the, right. and so then they're then I always send them to I always tell the parents I give them a really handy article which is from the um the National Office of Special Education which put out a statement that indicates that educational performance um is not so adverse um performance is not just related to academics um, there is a statement by the National Office of Special Education that says that. And so I will give my parents a copy of that and say, show this to your team because it's more than just academics. Um, so I, I, and I teach that, you know, in the IEP 504 course that I do too. And I give those handouts because it's so important that, that parents are so well equipped as well um, to be able to, to handle some of those obstacles. Um, and I think the other obstacle that, I haven't run across so much recently. I would say this was maybe a few years ago, more so is, is teachers assuming that the behavior is defiance. Yes. Right. And so that was, um, you know, tackling that. And I think I saw more of that, I think as a school psychologist working in the schools where 
you know, well, you know, Sally just doesn't want to talk. Well, she'll, she talks to her mom when her mom comes, but she won't talk to me or, or even she'll talk to Mrs. Smith, but she won't talk to me and not understanding that that yeah. is part of SM because they make their own rules, you know, that they, you know, and so, um, yeah, and just saying, you know, like, well, it's a behavior, you know, and then and, and sending the kids to the office, and then they're sitting in the office all day, and I'm like, no, 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 no. So I think helping them understand, and it's really just comes from a lack of understanding, which is why I really take the trainings that I do so seriously, because I think it's so important to inform people, and, mm -hmm. and thank you for having me, because I get another platform to do that. <laughs> but yeah, it's just so important. And thank you for what you're doing as well. Oh, thank you. Yep. Super proud. We're of trying. <laughs> we're trying. I guess we're almost done, but I guess we've already talked about telehealth a little bit, but can people like listening, like, do you need to Reach be, out. yeah. Can yeah. they access your um, courses and like your, your groups or do you need to be like a client already? Yeah, no. So um, my, my trainings are open to anybody. Um, so the basic training that I do on SM, it's a four hour course. I do it about three times a year, three to four times a year. My next one is going to be in April. Um, and that one is um, open to anybody anywhere. My IEP 504 training specific to SM open to anyone anywhere. Um, the social skills groups are also open to any anyone because I'm not um, treating individual clients and it's more of a social skills educational group. So we're not setting treatment goals and okay. doing so. So anybody can attend those social skills groups as well. Um, yeah. And, and I do, I do telehealth. Well, those social groups are online and they're going to remain online. We did an interest survey for current um, people and they're going to remain online at least through May. So when we do our second session, those, those will be online as well. And if I have, if there's enough interest locally and out of state, then I might find myself doing both or Kristen who got trained with me with the last SMTI, she's very interested in running social groups too. So that's another option to because I can't do everything right. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. I try, but I know better. I know better. So those are all simplypsychservices.com and I can share the link too. Yeah. I also, there's also a SciPact. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. It's a fairly new, um, it's between jurisdictions. So it allow, allows licensed psychologists to work across state lines. Um, currently, there are 13 states that are part of SIPACT and another 14 that have pending legislation to allow that. Um, and I'm working on, um, I'm working through the application of that. So, you know, if they're, yeah, so as far as doing um, individual therapy as well, hopefully those other states will open yeah, up. That's great for selective mutism because I, I feel like so many people don't have access. Yeah. Yep. Was that a result, do you think, mainly of the pandemic, or has that just been something ongoing in the works? It's been something ongoing in the works for, for several years, several years. I think it's been, um, you know, every, you know, if you're a social worker or you're a licensed counselor or you're a psychologist, it's all different rules. And then there's also every state has their own rules. If you want to get licensed in a different state to practice across state lines, you know, you have to either 
take one of the state tests or do another application or and they had different um whereas really i i think maybe it's a function of the the age that we're in of technology in general mm -hmm. um and just being that it's so easy to you know talk to somebody in a different state across state lines and if i'm a psychologist and i'm a licensed psychologist in this state and i'm ethical and i follow my rules and i do my education and why can't i talk to somebody across a different you know right. state line so i think that they're kind of coming on board with the idea that you know if you're a licensed psychologist you should be able to you know treat people in other states so wow okay. <laughs> i had one more question then i'll let you go <laughs> i think i sent it to you ahead of time but what you're clearly super passionate about this yeah. so i'm wondering what is your favorite thing about working with people with sm yeah i i think the growth that sometimes they're even surprised by whether it's the parents that are or the kids themselves so and just with the younger kids it's seeing the parents pride in what's happened with treatment and with older kids it's seeing their dreams come true like participating in a college class when they never before spoke you know k through 12 and now they're engaging in you know a college class um speaking up raising their hands um, or getting their first job and being successful with that I think it's what I love about my job in general, which is just helping people realize their potential and really that it was within them the whole time. Um, and I'm just, I'm just their guide to get them there, but it's very rewarding work. That's, That's amazing. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so yeah. much for coming on. Thank you. Really, yeah. Helpful. It's so, I don't know. It's like we had Dr. Kurtz, we had Dr. Schippenbloom, and now we've had Dr. Goodman and it's just so, um, <laughs> I know, so encouraging, I guess, to have somebody, you know, so passionate, like, like, that's how we feel. And it's just so <laughs> nice to talk to somebody, yeah. you know, to try to educate others and yeah. just try to get it out there. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Thank you again so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Out Loud, the Selective Mutism podcast. Please subscribe and leave us a rating and review in your podcast app. Goodbye. <laughs>